It's Nick. Welcome to the second season of our Reverend History. I well, it's a bit of a spoof, isn't it? Because I've just really been kind of lazy and, well, trapped in a kind of self-destructive spiral of hedonism for hookers heroin in history. But luckily, history won out. Here I am, back once again, Hogarden in hand and ready to tackle what the world can throw at us. Except maybe for coronavirus, like, which is shit. So shit. But as a mild potential upside, it's given me uh, a bit more time to get back to the pod, so we will have a few more out for you for the next coming weeks, eh? However, I have to say, I'm a bit hungover, a bit tired, and a lot out of practice, but hopefully our professionalism and dedication will shine through, as always. But before we get into that, we have a few hellos and thanks to say. And if I forget to mention you, I'm really sorry. It's the opiates, I mean, they really screw with your head, but... By all means, shoot us an email at reverendhistory at gmail.com or head us up on Twitter or Facebook at Reverend History and we'll respond because we're classy like that. Even though there's oh, a bit of a stockpile, you know, inundated with messages, some might say, must be hitting at least one a month now. Phenomenal. But we'll push on. And quick shouts to David and Ed, who's putting out blazes in Belfast. Robert Matthew, who sent me a really cool photo of a gravestone he came across in Flanders of a Japanese Northern Irishman with a cool epitaph. I tried to reply to the message in Big Book, but it wouldn't let me for some reason, so apologies for that, and uh, I hope you enjoyed your time in Belgium. There's also Alan Dallas from Coleraine, who seems to love long drives around Canada and binges the show while it's doing so in a couple of days. Also, there's a lady called Billy Sweet, and the Southside Chicago lass called Jane Brady Nossel, if I've pronounced that right. And then there's another lady who uh, whose email's name I can't find, but she listened to the pod and contacted me as a means for vocal research for a role as a Northern Irish person in a movie or a TV show. And I really hope she got the part, and some of the jokes, but who knows. Also, there's Alan Campbell, who's a minister with a cracking beard and a really deep love and knowledge of Irish history, so it's cool speaking to him. And they, uh, like, planted a few seeds in my head for future pods. Overloaded with messages, as you can tell, but mostly the delays were due to the research. I mean, in case you don't know, because to be fair, I haven't really said yet, but it's about a town, Bucunia, or the Cal Raid of Cooley, and it's a whopper six-parter. Now, in what seems like a massive digression, I used to play a game called Chantland. It's a football manager sim that now goes by the name of football manager it was proper addictive and has been cited as like a massive factor in so many divorces over the years like they release like a version every year and it sort of like coincided with the new football season and somewhere around the late 90s they included this timer which kind of logs how long you've been playing and it would additionally furnish you with like summary messages such as sleep is for sissies remember to wash and my favorite turning your pants inside out saves washing now, where am I going with this? Well, I just wonder what their comment would be regarding how long I'd spent researching for this pod. I mean, the cattle raid of Cooley is part of the Ulster Cycle, which is a huge collection of stories with lots of tangents and intersecting tales. Now, I've read three versions of the full text, numerous breakdowns and analysis pods and YouTube videos, and some that were really, really interesting, and others that were, I mean, I have to say, kind of shit. And then you look, you look at your views, and they've got like a million, and... Yeah, okay, we're a little short of that here, but we're getting there. And yeah, kind of reminds me that, you know, if you like it, you could always share or like the pod or even, God forbid, talk to the people in the oral traditions of old as this very story preaches. And, you know, tell them about us. I mean, that would be cool, but no pressure. And obviously, keep your two metre distance. But anyway, let's kick on. And yes, in case you're wondering, I have changed my pants, so don't be worrying. First, though, here's episode 18. Flogging the town is all mine, all mine. Flogging the town is all mine. Learn of the past, but answers can't be asked. It's researching such a mystery. So I'll grab this podcast and I'll learn at last of Ulster's irreverent history. So here's the deal it's Iron Age Ireland and Queen Maeve. He's like an evil stuffer's mum. 
is on her way to a place called Cooley because she's taking a shine for a big fat cow that lives there. Cooley is an Ulster and Maeve is Queen of Connacht. So traditionally, she's not overly welcome. Meaning, she's had to amass a rather large host of men from all over Ireland to help her attain the possession of this particular bull. And you may be thinking, just jumping right in there with a big battle here. As surely Maeve's band of warriors will be met head on by the men of Ulster, keen to defend her territory against the force that awakens against them. And you'd be right. Sort of. Ulster is defended by an army, sure. But it's an army in euphemistic terms only. As it's an army of one. Well, we'll get into the detail of why later, but it makes Maeve laugh. She's no dozer. She's fully aware of why there's only one bandit on the border. And has chosen this exact moment to invade. What she doesn't take into account, though, is who the one-man defence force is. It's the Iron Age, Muhammad, I'm hard, Bruce Lee. But all she knows is that it's a teenage boy called Cahoolan. And despite having heard a few rumours of his natural prowess, she pays little heed to his chances of repelling her almighty host. Fergus McRoyke, her trusted sidekick and uh, sidekick, so to speak, is a little less enthusiastic about their chances. He knows Cahoolan better than most and is well aware of his capabilities. Thus, it's not too long after the invasion that... Having had her armies advance, halted more than a few times, and losing a not insignificant number of men to this apparent whelp, Maeve says, quote, Sure, he's just a boy. And Fergus is all, Nah. Maeve rolls her eyes, giving Fergus the, I've heard it all before, look, and she sends her troops into battle once again. And once again, they come back battered and bruised. She in turn is frustrated, irritated, annoyed, but this time willing to listen. So that night, when they set up camp, Fergus gets a proper chance to introduce Maeve to the boyhood deeds of Cahoolan. He begins his tale like all good storytellers do, by telling her to grab a seat, to strap in, and let's get cracking. Now don't worry if you don't know who Maeve or Fergus or Alayla is. We will get to and through them all very soon. But, just to be upfront here, there are a vast amount of names and pronunciations in this irreverent history retelling of these Celtic tales, and it can get a little confusing. Confusion only exacerbated by Irish having a few dialects, and while some out there might be crying into their keyboards as we desecrate their beloved language, we are, to use a badly but deliberately chosen saying, sticking to our guns, and going with the, uh, how would you say it, phonetic enunciations of our very own Donegal Gill Talk specialist, namely Robbie Clark. King in the West. So try not to fall out with us over it as we're doing our best to go deep into the life and times of Cahoolan, the Hound of Ulster. But not just yet. Let's sideline him for a minute and begin with introductions to Maeve and Alayla, the majestic King and Queen of Connacht. As a quick reminder, Ireland has four provinces, Ulster, Leinster, Munster and Connacht, covering, for brevity's sake, North east, south and west of the island respectively. Now I remember as a kid coming home with school books and you have to read about kings and queens and royal life and you just took it as fact. I mean, you didn't ask for backstory or context and you certainly didn't inquire as to how the little made up cartoon family got to the throne. Nah, you just accepted they were king and queen and that was that. Well not here. We are going to probe much deeper over the course but let's start high level and who better start with than Maeve. You may know from Amazon Prime's highly recommended show, The Boys, which is a whopper, by the way. Well, she was Queen of Connacht through her father, a former High King of Ireland. And Alil was also of similar royal stock. And when, you know, when I say similar, I mean the same. He was the grandson of Maeve's sister, Etha, and had risen through the ranks to be Maeve's bodyguard before fighting her former husband, Okadala, in a one-on-one duel, which he won and took as a surprise. 
Yeah, none other than his green at the Maven. All the booty that came with her. And yes, that does mean all the booty. Oh, Ireland. Yes, it was a different place back then. You do have to step outside of your, your 21st century morals a little. Let's not dwell on that as we move on to the actual opening of the story. And it begins with Maeve and her great nephew, post coitally Chan. Yeah, they're lying in bed when all of a sudden a ruckus begins. You know the drill. You and your partner are just chilling, feeling rough off the previous night's excesses. One of you mentions hunger, the other agrees, but neither wants to face the day. That's the trouble. Both of you just want to lie in bed and you probably don't have slaves servicing your every whim so someone has to pull on a trackies and a hat, brave the outside world and bring home the bacon, so to speak. Well, not if you're Maven Alil. As king and queen of Connacht, they live in a palace in Crookin. So they just rang a little bell and a multitude of servants come tumbling in with every delicacy your mind could imagine. Alil, a naturally humble man, was all, Jesus Christ, I love being so damn rich. His counterpart, the uh, ever-meek and modest Maeve, giggles and nods, grinning from ear to ear as she's fed another truffle by a slave. But then it happens. Alil utters the fateful words. Must be just swell being a kept woman, Maeve. Her eyes flick to him, scanning his face for signs of banter, but he ain't joking. And a back and forth ensues, escalating to the point where the slaves are ordered to itemise each and every one of the king and queen's possessions. Literally everything is counted. Rings, coins, land, property, and in all of that they were equal. But then it came to Cal. And you might remember the expedition is called the Cal Raid of Cooley. So it will give you a clue as to what the outcome of the big count was. Yes, whilst they were each found to have an equal number of cows. Oil, Eilil, also has a bull up his sleeve, Finnebatch, the white-horned bull. And to make matters worse, he used to belong to Maeve. But in what will drive today's PC-heavy culture wild with rage, Finnebatch moved across the Eilil's herd as he refused to be ruled by a woman. <sighs> now, I'm just a little unsure as to how they knew Finnebatch was harbouring these overtly sexist sentiments, as I'm assuming he couldn't talk, but... Whatever the reason for his desertion, finding out that Alil was richer made Maeve's face turn. Just kind of like she'd walked in her parents making love. And from that second forth, Maeve wanted a bull. But there was only one the equal of Fenabach. Can you guess where it was? Aha, uh-huh, you nailed it. Cooley and bloody Ulster. So war was called. But to be fair to Maeve, she actually tried diplomacy first. She tried to negotiate peacefully for the big brown bull with a very mafiosa sounding name, the Dawn of Cooley, and she damn near succeeded. Negotiations were undertaken with Dare, the bull's owner, and there was no lowballing, no trying to get a bargain. Maeve was so desperate to get the bull that she went in big, offering lots of money, lots of land, and, well, what becomes quite a common theme, even her own friendly thighs. All for the lend of the bull. She isn't even trying to buy it, just to borrow it for a bit and put it out to stud. So not a bad offer, all considering, but at the 11th hour, things turned sour. Three messengers in a bar, which sounds like the opening of a joke, but the punchline here is not so funny, well at least for Dare. The three messengers were just having a few scoops after long travel, as you do, but as the maid flowed, the tongues got looser. One of the connected messengers made a glib comment as to how, how great it was that these talks ended without bloodshed. And Dare's man is like, why would there be bloodshed? And the third guy's like, well... Because Maeve has always taken the bill, by hook or by crook. This little comment makes its way back to Dare. And he kicks off big time, telling McRoth, who's Maeve's messenger, that he can shove the deal up his hole. McRoth finds Maeve, 
rather unconcerned, and she confirms the messenger's earlier assertions by stating, rather ominously, that, quote, we needn't polish the knobs and knots in this. It was well known. It would be taken by force if it wasn't given freely. And taken it will be. Just a side note here, though, and it's maybe a bit anal of me, but if she paid so much money and land and sex, I suppose, to get the bull, even if she had the bull, then the rest of her riches wouldn't be equal to Alil's riches. But hey, let's not get in the way of the story here, okay? No deal scenario. A disaster for Ireland, I tell you. Sees Maeve dispatch her heralds out into the night, inviting men from all over the Emerald Isle to come and fight against Ulster. And that might sound a bit familiar to some. Bit of a black cat deja vu there. But there was no stopping Maeve's plans. Answering her call were men from Munster, Connaught, Leinster, Meath. Thousands of men, including 3,000 or so from Ulster itself. Men like Fergus McRoig. Cormac Conglogus, who was none other than the estranged son of the incumbent King of Ulster himself. Basically, the 3,000 were exiles. Men who left Ulster under a cloud due to an event known as the slaying of the Sons of Ushla, which we've all heard of, haven't we? Have you not? Ah, for fuck's sake. Right, we'll have to tell that too then. So just hold your horses for a minute and we'll get the letter right. But you may have heard me mention Meath. And Meath is the Irish word for middle. And that's where it was, an old province, adding to the other four, but right in the middle of Ireland. It's kind of cool how Irish names actually mean something, isn't it? But if you forget, here's a rhyme we came across that might help you remember them. Leinster for Breeden, and Ulster for Raven, Munster for Raiden, and Con for Thieven. Aye, no bloody mention of Meath, eh? But why? Because it stopped being a province when the Normans decided so. Bloody English, or... Well, sorry, bloody French. But did you catch what Ulster is famous for? Ah, it's only raven. It's basically raiding and stealing. Which is ironic, as this time it's Maeve who's on the prowl, you know, chomping at the bit to get going, wanting to take the bull by the horns, eh? Oh, God. But there was a problem. The druids. The men of magic and wisdom, and they were not like the omens. So she had to wait. And even though you kind of get the impression that she didn't really care much for the gods and the auguries, but... It did mean something to many of her men, and she knew that, so she waited. Smart with me, eh? But also impatient. And by day three, the druids' delays were really pissing on her cornflakes. In a major shrub, she jumped in her chariot to have a party with the druids. A little bit of one-on-one, some gentle persuasion from her friendly thighs, perhaps, but on the way, she bumped into a sorceress called Fedelum. Now, Fedlam had been in a gap year in Scotland, learning verse and vision in Alva, and after a little bit of small talk, Maeve she wanted a second opinion on the omens. Fedlam, she kind of pondered for a second before saying, quote, I see it crimson, I see it red. Which sounds good at first, but Maeve sees something in Fedlam's eyes and asks her again, or thrice more to be accurate, and each time she's met with the same retort. But in the final reply, she adds some extra chat about a man destroying her entire trip, a man that will make dense slaughter of all of them, including the line, quote, In thousands you will yield your heads. Maeve kind of gives her the old eye thanks to that, but you know, me bollocks, and pays a prophecy no heed. She's obviously been reading up in Sun Tzu's The Art of War, and she has had her enemy watched. Her spies throughout Ulster have been telling her all about the warrior's troubles. They are in the pangs of Maha. It's a debilitating curse, and yet another tangent we need to speak of later. But for now, just know that it means that the men are in terrible physical pain and can't even stand and fight. So Maeve dismisses Fedlam's words and proceeds in her way, as confident as ever of success. So... She has her meeting with the Druids, and we're not exactly sure how, 
but Old Butterthighs is granted permission to begin her army's advance onwards to Ulster, with the intention to leave tracks that would, quote, never fade as if a scar on the land. In her ranks are men from four of the five provinces, heroes, champions, epic sword fighters, killers really, but with honour. They don't murder, they slay. Sounds like a merry bunch, but they're all united in a common cause. Money. But also, they kind of want to have a crack at Ulster, a province renowned for causing trouble, which is why, almost 1500 years later, King James tried to plant new settlers there to nullify what was still a problem population. And well, everyone lived happily ever after. Anyway, the hosts are getting along famously for about five minutes. Maeve, as you may have gathered, likes to get things her own way and maybe hog the limelight a little. And from her chariot she can see a certain horde of Leinstermen that she just can't help but hate. Why? Are they slacking? Did they get too drunk? Is it just that they're from Leinster? Which, to be fair, is a decent enough excuse for with them soaking up most of the IRFU and GAA budgets. No, it's because they are too damn good. And it's not just Maeve seeing it, everyone sees it. They are just so damn efficient. Up early, on the march before anyone else, polished outfits, fitter than the rest, well drilled, and in bed with full bellies before the others can even get a tent popped or a fire lit. And it makes Maeve furious. How dare they? Glory stealing bastards. This is her trip. And it's there for her glory. And she demands that they leave. A little differs in opinion and points out that maybe uh, it's not the best idea to leave around 3,000 highly trained and pissed off troops behind their lines, especially when their own province lies practically unguarded. May as well hand them the keys to the kingdom and let them take their pick of the chicks. So Maeve has a quick rethink and decides upon murder, which kind of seems like a mild of reaction, doesn't it? And you wonder what Lil's thinking that she's so quick to murder. He looks to Fergus. Fergus is an honourable man. To an extent, and him and Alil helped me have to realise that rather than kill the best troops in the army in only the first day of the expedition, it might be a better option to filter them out amongst the rest of the men. This would keep the army strength in numbers, and might even inspire some of the other soldiers on the greater things. And to this, she is agreeable. So the invasion continues snaking through the hills towards Ulster, with Fergus doing an apparently great job at navigating. The army is moving quickly and efficiently, but to the keener eye, they don't seem to be getting as close to their objective as quickly as you would imagine. Fergus, you see, is dealing with inner turmoil. As we mentioned, he's a son of Ulster, a former king of the province, yet now in exile, and whilst being Iceland probably doesn't sit well with a man of his pride and his stature, he still has a love for the lamb dark, the red hand, so he's torn. His knowledge of the land meant giving him the task of guiding the army was a no-brainer. But in his heart, he doesn't want the province to be decimated. Which would absolutely will if Maeve and her mercenaries get free reign to rape and pillage. So he navigates the army down seldom travelled roads and pathways to lay in the attack and buy an Ulster precious time. Maeve, the canny cat, can sense he's up to something and questions him. But he's ready for her and his excuse is cool saying he wants to avoid him at all costs. And it makes sense, as Cahoolan is up to some tricks himself, even if Maeve is still unconvinced by the boy's reputation. Cahoolan. I haven't really mentioned him that much so far, have I? Well, he's been hanging out with his dad, as the rest of Ulster's warriors are still incapacitated, pangs of my heart. Remember, he's left to single-handedly guard the province when he hears of the host coming. He's like, he's kind of like Ulster's Obi-Wan, you know, their only hope. His dad... Sultim, a Leinsterman by birth, so unaffected by the pangs. 
as is Cúhil, remember, tears off the M in Maha, the home of Conqueror, the king of Ulster, to deliver the warning of the impending assault. Cúhillan immediately starts planning how to delay the approaching army. And by immediately, yeah, we mean after he's gone on a booty call with Fedlam Nogroth, who is none other than one of the king's daughters, and as we'll see later, probably Cúhillan's cousin, or niece, depending. Questionable family bonding aside, though, uh, I'm sure most of us can appreciate this move. One final night of passion before a battle to end all battles, one that he may not return from, like the kind of nervy soldiers meeting their partners on the shores of Belfast the night before shipping off to France during the Great War, fearing that they would not see land nor lover again. And if that was the case, I'd agree, but Cahillan isn't like that. He doesn't believe he has any weaknesses, and he certainly has no thoughts of finality or mortality. He's just a horn dog. And to amplify these thoughts and to show just how seriously he's taken the impending invasion, he only has a bloody lie in the next day. Though, to his credit, whilst he was getting up to whatever teenagers get up to, he was fully aware that he'd landed the first punch. Have you ever heard of a megalith? Well, it's a big standing stone, prevalent in ancient Ireland and Britain, like at Newgrange or Stonehenge, and Cahillan kind of did a Banksy on one. The previous night before, uh, well, I suppose visited his cousin, you should say, um, he had crafted a wooden ring and wrote a message on the megalith. A message in ancient Agamic script, which kind of adds to this mischief, as it's such an archaic language that few can read it. Even Maeve needs Fergus to translate it for. It decrees that the army must camp there that night or until a man can cast a ring of equal quality, using only one hand and from a single branch. No easy task for mere mortals, eh? And the squad of druids are summoned from the rear to inspect the integrity of the challenge. They hum, they ha, they confer and contort before ruling that the host cannot pass without obeying the rules or bad things will happen. To be fair, it was late anyway, so the camp where they stood, and that night the snow fell so deep that it covered the horses up to their shoulders. It was maybe just coincidence, but in such a superstitious country, many saw it as a warning. Either way, the message was clear. The path ahead would be fraught with danger and demonology. It's kind of like the old tales that Robin Hood spread about Sherwood Forest being haunted. It was just to keep the sheriff and Nottingham away, and it works wonders here, as a rumour rips through the camp that it's the doing of the Irish war spirits, the Nemean, meaning panic or frenzy, and that's exactly the seed Cahoolan wants to sow. Speaking of Cahoolan, who henceforth we shall call Coo for short, well, like we said, he's post-coital, but he's still in the scratcher when Lloyd, who's his trusty charioteer, tells him that this invading army has somehow got in front of them. Cahoolan asks Lloyd to go scout their numbers whilst he finds his pants. Upon returning, Lloyd gives Coo his best guess and Coo scoffs, scolding poor Lloyd for his counting inaccuracy, basically saying, quote, If I want a job done properly, I'll bloody well do it myself. And that's a statement which instantly transports me back to my childhood, but that's probably between me and my dad and my therapist. But anyway, with his master's tantrum still ringing in his ears, Loig doesn't spur the horses in the duo race back in front of the Irish army, as the dastardly coup has already formulated yet another task for the host. This time, he chops a log with one slice of his mighty sword, leaving it with four prongs, tags it with more ogums, and tosses it into the road so no chariot may pass. Maeve is kind of, she's one in advance notice any more tasks she bloody hates delays. So she sent the scouting party out to check the road ahead and it consisted of two pairs of brothers. While they're out and about having a wee joke they spotted Coo in the woods and decided they would take him prisoner. But this kicked off an argument about who would have first dibs. And they kind of neglected the actual killing part. 
and their noise, their argument, it alerted Ku, who ended the debate immediately by lopping off all four of their heads. And that's a kind of good number because he used the freshly severed heads to decorate his four-pronged trap. One head for each prong, but he's not finished. He ties the headless corpses upright in the now claret-covered chariot and ass slaps one of the horses so as to make it bolt off back the way it came. Unsurprisingly, this is not received well and seems like the work of many men. So Maeve sends Congregus and his army to see what the crack was. To her annoyance, he returns to confirm that all they found, aside from, well, the heads on stakes, was just another Ogham-style challenge with the rule stating that unless the army can provide a champion that can jump the huge branch, then they cannot pass legally into the ford. Now, I'm going to go in the limb here and uh, just ask, are you wondering, kind of like I am, who gives a shit about these tests? I mean, who's really going to know? You know who's really going to know what was done and what wasn't? Just kind of say you did it and saunter on. Well... The druids would. And the druids are dicks. You remember that kind of kid in school who loved nothing more than a squirrel heap at any and every opportunity? Well, the druids' entire ranks are made up of those little bastards. And they take their role very seriously. So believe me when I say skirting up the rules is a perilous task with serious consequences. Sometimes. But what does this mean for Maeve? Well, basically just delays. Lots and lots of delays and she cracks up but they have to deal with these tasks or the druids start predicting imminent death and dishonour at the hands of the gods. And as we said her army is made up of very superstitious men and the thought of offending the gods in any way makes them shit their collective Iron Age britches. There's lots of oddities in the town and here's another one. While their armies kind of try and they attempt to accomplish the task, you know, Maeve and Alil are, they're giving it the full Inspector Clouseau. They're kind of racking their brains as to just who the mysterious prankster is that's causing them so much trouble. I mean, they parley with Fergus, they run through a list of mugshots, they even blame the King of Ulster, Conqueror. And Fergus is like, what are you talking about? None of those guys are going to come anywhere near the border without an army at their backs. Well, there's that reason. And there's also the reason that he knows who it is. We know who it is. I don't know how M&A don't know who it is. M&A being Maven and Alil from now on, by the way. And it's so mental because it's the guy prophesied to Maeve by Fedlam. The most hero we of heroes of Ulster. The biggest clue of the lot was that he wrote his name on the megalith. Bloody signed it. Regards, Koo, Feck and Hillen. Yet they still ponder over who it could be. It's so mental because they were just talking about Koo five minutes ago as well. I mean, it's mesmerisingly, if uncharacteristically dumb. Fergus is gobsmacked at their kind of buffoonery, and he decides to put the record straight. He tells Maeve that it's a 17-year-old called Cahoolan. And she laughs from deep in her belly. (laughs) Quote, But he's only in his early youth, and his manly deeds are yet to come. Fergus retorts with, Oh no, dear Maeve. Quote, It would be nothing strange for him to do mighty deeds at this point. When he was younger, his acts were already manly. Now, who'd have thought that a manly man would pique Maeve's interest? But surprisingly, she's all ears and wants to hear more about the strong and virile young whippersnapper. Isla Lil's interested too, and he orders drinks and encampment, as the hosts are pretty knackered after all the tree jumping and decking around. Yet, there's a buzz in the camp. Word is spread that these obstacles are the work of a single entity, a lone wolf. It's John Rambo, says one. 
No tash from shop S Mart, says another. Speculation is rife. Wild rumours start circulating, so Alayla asked the Osterman, focusing primarily on Fergus and Congregus, to spill the beans. Everyone is summoned around what must have been a feckin' huge campfire, and Fergus prefixes the tale with this introduction of Coo. Quote, Thou findest not there one that could equal his age and his growth, his dress and his terror, his size and his splendour, his fame and his voice, his shape and his power, his form and his speech, his strength and his feats and his father, his smiting, his heat and his anger, his dash, his assault and attack, his dealing of doom and affliction, his roar, his speed, his fury, his rage and his quick triumph with the feet of the nine men and each sword points above him like unto Cullen. Jesus, somebody threw some cold water at Ferg there. I think he's about to bloody swoon. His words must have been man out of Coo's ears, who's probably listening from the bushes, but they are hardly inspiring for the men here to challenge him in battle, are they? The one good thing about it is that in that contemporary society, either to kill or be killed by a man of such repute is seen as quite the treat. Way better than dying at the hands of some pleb, anyhow. And Coo, as we shall delve into next week, is far from a pleb. So, as I just alluded to, that's it for this week. But like Maeve, getting all frothy at the lips upon mention of a dappy young dander, we hope that this has wet your whistle, and you'll join us next week when we look back on Cahoolan's boyhood deeds, which, I can assure you, make the deeds of my 39 years seem like a postcard from Port Rush. So, don't miss it. In between, there may be posts on Reverend History Facebook page and Twitter, blah blah blah, but there may not be, because I'm a bit lax, and all this Cahoolan saga has been mega, to be honest. We, uh, as in me, have decided to split it into a number of parts, released once a week for a couple of weeks or so. And for this, you can sort of thank a listener called Joe, who once said to me that she was driving from Belfast to Banbridge to visit her parents, a journey of about, I know, 25, 30 miles. She said she started one of the pods when she began her journey, listened to it for a bit at her destination, and it was still going when she was on her way home. I think it was a complaint, but I'm not sure. But I do have to say, I mean, has she ever heard of the pause button? But she added that she did enjoy it, uh, even though it was a bit long. Which is a complaint I never grow tired of hearing. But, uh, on that note, I hope you enjoyed the first part of this epic. And if you didn't, sure, who cares, it's free, like, isn't it? But if you did, then remember to join us again next week for some more crack about Cahoolan. And to play us out, here's some random Irish music that I also find for free on Creative Commons. And I'm pretty sure they didn't listen to this before they went to war. But then, I don't know. And it's free. So, I'll listen. Literally.